You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 84. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You have reached another Local Maximum. Welcome, welcome. So, I'm going to start today with the following quote that was said by the character Sherlock Holmes. When you have eliminated the impossible... Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That was written by Sherlock Holmes author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But what happens when what remains, that unlikely proposition that must be true, is also eliminated? Can't happen, you say. Actually, I think it happens all the time, and it results in a paradox. It could be a mathematical uh, paradox. It could be, um, in what we'll talk about today, kind of a physical paradox when you're talking about the world around you. And it can happen when your menu of possibilities is kind of incomplete or if you're thinking about a question in the wrong way. And it turns out we do this all the time when we come, up with, when we come against this brick wall Um, This is actually very much related to the concept of the local maximum in life, where you need to be baffled and stuck before reaching a higher level of understanding. And that's what drives civilization forward. And that's where my next conversation ended up. It started in a different place, then we went to other places, and then we ended up there. So I started talking to Anthony Aguirre about the nature of physics, and we ended up talking about how these mind-bending propositions and truths that you often get in something like particle physics and quantum physics, uh, are often so counterintuitive and how they can change our understanding of the world. So this is actually a two-part conversation. Um, I wanted to have Anthony talk about his prediction engine called Metaculus, which we discussed briefly, but um, I'm going to put that all in next week's episode, in episode 85, because that's kind of another conversation. You know, prediction engines, that's in my wheelhouse. But man, talking about these issues in physics to one of the highest level professors in the field, that's crazy. But I was so curious. I'm so curious about, you know, how the the, the universe works, like what's actually happening in there that um, even though I, I'm not, I, I didn't feel, um, you know, I, I felt like I had only um, kind of an inkling of what questions to ask, I really wanted to go for it, ask it. So I started with some questions that I've always had, you know, is the universe discrete or is it continuous? Um, in, in mathematics, we have the concept of a real number, which is sort of a continuous number line from you know one to zero to infinity, but you could have like any number in between, and it seems like you know that sort of you kind of feel like well something like water is continuous, right? It's a continuous liquid. You but actually when you zoom into water, no, it's made up of these molecules that are kind of sticky. So um, it's it feels like the universe doesn't work that way. It feels like the space probably doesn't work that way, where if you zoom in, space doesn't look like space anymore. Um, So that was one of my questions. Um, And also, like, what does it mean when we say the universe is made of information? And, you know, we see where it goes. There's uh, a lot of these things don't have clear answers, but I felt that I had kind of a 
I kind of gained a better way of, of thinking about all of this stuff. And there's a lot of stuff in here that might not be familiar to you and we jump around. But if you like these issues in general, I just started diving into Anthony's book, Cosmological Koans, which takes some of these contradictory ideas from physics. And it really starts from the beginning, like Zeno's paradox. How can something move if it has to go through an infinite number of steps to get from point A to point B? And then it just takes it from there. So I'm excited to get through that. Physicist Anthony Aguirre studies the formation, nature, and evolution of the universe, focusing primarily on the model of eternal inflation, the idea that inflation goes on forever in some regions of the universe, and what it may mean for the ultimate beginning of the universe and time. He is the co-founder and associate scientific director of the Foundational Questions Institute, which supports research on questions at the foundations and new frontiers of physics and cosmology. Anthony is also a co-founder of the Future of Life Institute, an organization aiming to increase the probability that life has a future, and of Metaculus, an effort to optimally aggregate predictions about scientific discoveries, technological breakthroughs, and other interesting issues. Anthony Aguirre, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thanks. It's great to be here. All right. So I, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about uh, technological forecasting. And so, you know, that, that was the link. That was my in to get you on here. But before we jump into that, I really want to have a discussion about uh, quantum physics and cosmology and the fundamental nature of the universe, because it's something that, you know, I'm so curious about. And every once in a while, I go down the like, YouTube uh, click hole and, uh, you know, watch all these videos about it. And then I'm, I'm still, you know, I, I have no one to talk about, talk to about it. So <laughs> I'm hoping you can indulge me for a few minutes. The people who are listening to the show are at a variety of different levels of understanding. So um, let me just start with one question. And, and another reason why a lot of these questions come up for me is, you know, I'm often running statistical models, right? And I'm sure you do that in physics too. And almost always I'm thinking about the question I'm answering and I'm like, well, you know, this isn't really the right question. This ground truth isn't really ground truth. There's a more fundamental thing going on here. And it's always what's more fundamental, what's more fundamental. And so you always think about, you know, what's, what's the most fundamental level in the universe, if that makes sense. Um, So one thing that I have a question about when it comes to like space and and particles is space fundamentally discrete or continuous? Because I think, you know, the mathematical model of real numbers has a lot of problems if it's instantiated in the real world. Is this something that um, physicists have a a good answer for? Yeah, that is a super interesting question that I would say there isn't a good answer for yet. Um, so there, there, there are whole different levels at which we could talk about this question. So one is uh, there's a sense in which nature is fundamentally discrete, and, and that's connected with the, the whole idea of quantum mechanics. And uh, the, the quantum and quantum mechanics comes from the sense that there are quanta. They're like discrete steps in things like energy and, and so on. Um, but it comes in in a, in, a, in a kind of odd sense, like if you, if you take a an ener- a system with a, a certain finite amount of energy and a certain finite size, then there are strong indications that there are a finite set of ways that that system can be. Like there aren't a continuous set or a, a, like infinite set of ways that it can be, but a finite one. So there's like a, a finite number of states. Um, right. But if you ask like, is there a like a grid of 
you know, if you take a particle, say, and say, yeah. and ask, is there a, are there a discrete set of places that that particle can be? It doesn't quite work that way. Um, like if you, if you hone in on any particular place, at least in, in, uh, let's exclude gravity and quantum gravity for a second. If you just think about okay. regular quantum mechanics, um, you can hone in on any particular place you want and ask, like, is the electron there? And it'll give you kind of a smooth probability of the electron being there. You won't right. find like certain places like, oh, no, you hit the edge of the screen or like a, a pixel edge or something like that of the universe. Um, and so they're, they're like a discrete set of states, but there aren't like a discrete set of places. Sometimes there are a discrete set of energies. Um, but then in quantum gravity, you can ask, like, shouldn't it be that there's a discreteness to space time? Because if, you know, if space and time are quantized, there has to be like a finest division of space or a finest division of time. And we have quantities that go along with this called the Planck length and the Planck time that kind of tell us how small that granularity has to be. Um, but I would say that there isn't a clear model for what that kind of looks like. It's not like there's, a again, a, a grid of times or a grid of places and you can even argue that that grid notion is kind of incompatible with the the symmetries that the world has. We know, for example, from like fundamental particle physics reasons that the the world is rotationally symmetric. Like you can you can rotate sort of the laws of physics and they look the same. But if you had a right. grid, it doesn't have that symmetry to it, right? It, you can tell if you've rotated a grid. So it's right, it's right, a right. really interesting and deep question to figure out how exactly this sort of discreteness that we know has to be there at some level will actually manifest in quantum gravity. And the okay. versions of quantum gravity we have don't quite tell us. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the question that kind of blows my mind, where it's like, okay, uh, I, I think there's probably something discrete going on underneath everything. But unlike, you know, in a, in a virtual reality situation where, you know, a few episodes ago I, I – did an interview on, on on virtual reality. I know that in those artificial worlds, you know, the, the fundamental units of space are a grid, even though, you know, hey, if I'm playing like a game, I can, I could rotate, I don't really know where the, um, you know, they, they kind of, uh, uh, what paper over the fact that it's a grid. So if I rotate my camera, I really can't tell. But underneath there, that th there's a grid, but I, 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 like you said, we know that's not going on with the universe. And then I'm like, how can how can that be if there isn't some sort of grid or hexagons or something? I'm just like, I don't know. I'm at a loss. <laughs> I don't. I can't figure it out. <laughs> well, it, it it's an interesting illustration of the the way that we have intuitive notions for how to apply some idea to the world, like discreteness. Um, but the world generally doesn't go along with those necessarily. It. it you know, the physicists have learned the hard way over <laughs> over a long period that the universe tells us how it is, you know, if we're careful enough in asking the right questions and doing the right experiments. And often the things that, it, that, that form that the answers come in uh, are very surprising and counterintuitive. And, and we have to adjust our intuitions and understanding to, to it rather than expect to, for it to conform to our understanding. So, you know, when you... And this happens over and over again with, with relativity and with quantum mechanics. And even these concepts like, well, how can it be that, um, you know, there are finite, how, how can how can it be that real numbers work so well, right? If we would expect that uh, if the universe is fundamentally 
quantum or discrete or something that we should really be using integers or rational numbers or something. But right, because almost all of our well. models, yeah. Um, and and so there there are, uh, but they do, and and almost everything works perfectly yeah. well if we use real numbers. And the discreteness comes in in different ways. Like I said, in for example, you uh, you think of a system as having different wavelengths that are, you know, rather than thinking of, of a system in, in real space, you can think of it in so-called Fourier space, right? You can, you can think of it as being composed of a different set of frequencies, just like sound. You can think of as, as a little thing going up and down on the screen as we record, or you can think yeah. of it as being composed of lots of different frequencies. Um, so let's, in, let's expand into like Fourier space a little bit, just in case sure. there it's a lot of people probably don't know what that, what that means. I, sometimes it's hard for me to take some of these concepts and try to put it in audio format, but let's, why don't, why don't we give it a shot? Yeah. So, so, so it's, it's exactly that. Um, if you, if you look at the waveform of sound, for example, you know, the, the little movement up and down on the screen as, as we record it, that tells us, you know, how loud the sound is as a function of time. Instead, right. you can, and what your ear does, in fact, is break that up into just a combination of frequencies. And by adding up the frequencies in just the right way, you'll get that same uh, like waveform. But it, you can think of it as totally different because rather than being, you know, like something that extends over time, it's a whole. It's just a whole bunch of frequencies. And, and so it's, it's exactly the same information, but uh, packaged in a sort of radically different way where you say, okay, there's, there's 30.2 units of 80 hertz and there's 36.8 units of 120 hertz and so on. That's a very different description than like the, the amount of sound as a function of time. So, right. so, by, so this is just a different way of conceptualizing the same information. But it's one that nature uses a lot in the sense that when you think about the discreteness of a quantum system, often it won't be, often it will be that things are discrete in Fourier space. That is, there are a discrete set of frequencies that you can use to describe that thing. And there's like a, a maximum frequency, say, and a minimum frequency. And then there's a discrete set of ones that you can use. And you just don't get to choose frequencies that come in between those. And so although each one of those frequencies kind of has a real number associated with it, like how much is there of that frequency that can be described as a real number, there's a discrete set of them. So, so this is like, uh, like it, this takes a lot of getting used to. Um, right. Like this is kind of the natural way that nature thinks about things when, when you try to think about it quantum mechanically, but it's not the way that we think about things. We don't consciously think about things in terms of a bunch of frequencies, even though our ear you know, does that for us. Um, that's what it's actually doing, but we don't think that way. And so when we conceptually think of a discrete set of ways that something could be, we think in terms of space and like grids and things, but that isn't the way right. that the quantum mechanics naturally describes them. So maybe if I could sort of summarize, tell me if this is off, uh, you know, there are, you know, fundamental, you know, the fundamental, um, information of the universe has some structure. I mean, we don't know, of course, but we could like hypothesize that it's a discrete structure. But that's not really the 3D space that we know of, but it gets mapped onto 3D space, which is kind of how our brains are wired to understand it. Yeah, I think that's a useful way to look at it, that, that whatever way space and time turn out to be discrete, it, it will be something not like a grid, 
but something else um, that we will understand to be discrete and and we'll see the way in which our kind of smooth, continuous space and time description comes out of that and is compatible with that um, in some level of approximation. That's what we expect will happen uh, when we understand quantum gravity, which will be any day now. <laughs> yeah. How long have we been trying? Oh, I guess uh, depends how you count. Almost 100 years, sort of. Uh, 75, 100 uh-huh. Is this yeah. uh, something that is uh, predicted on Metaculus when we'll get to the bottom of quantum gravity? Uh, astonishingly not. I, we, I just discovered recently that we don't have a question about that. So we, we've started to, to write one up. And um, it's a little bit tricky because you have to think about, well, what, is, what counts? You know, what will be a satisfying theory of quantum gravity? Uh, yeah. so you have to dig into the weeds of what do we want it to actually to do? Why doesn't string theory count, for example? And then we already, it's already resolved or... Uh, so like anything, um, that you're trying to predict, you know, and, and, and we can, we can just dig into the weeds of prediction. Um, you find that the, the question that you have in mind that you think is reasonably clear often isn't, you know, and it actually takes a fair amount of work to figure out what exactly you're asking. Right. Right. Okay. I, I still have more physics questions, so let's go. Let's, yeah, let's, go let's, let's stick with the physics and, and we'll yeah. come back to the Yeah. All right. So, uh, right. I, sometimes I just say things that whatever question comes to mind, which is all right. Uh, another related question is that, um, you know, I, I, I've seen some videos of yours about how the universe is made of information. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. And maybe this is like, you know, from where I'm coming from as like a machine learning engineer, data scientist, where I'm always thinking of every system in terms of what information it has. But what would a universe that's not made of information look like? Like what, what is the, um, is information just a way of thinking about the universe or is it like, is it a description of it? Um, or maybe that question, I think the the conception that most people have had for a long time is that you know the universe is made of stuff, um, right. and and classically that was, you know, many many different kinds of stuff, and and then we gradually developed the idea that there were sort of a, a discrete set of different kinds of stuff, different atoms, um, and then different particles, and and a pretty small number of them that when aggregated together in different ways had different properties, and we gave different names. But it was still stuff, and we had this conception that, you know, if you really zoom down, there's a little bit of matter, like a little chunk there's of like a little, something. Yeah, uh, d- this is dust. Yeah, and um, and I think the the history of 20th century physics has been to kind of undermine that notion in a lot of ways that there's that there's sort of a, a stuffness there, that there's a a material aspect of the universe that is, um, kind of matter. Um, and that information would be about, you know, so I think the concept, the, the classic conception of information is that there's, there's a thing, there's some stuff, maybe it's arranged in some way. And then there are, there's information about that, that, that somebody might have. Um, right, right. The two or, separate or things. Might have a description of it. Yeah. Um, and what has been interesting is, is finding the extent to which the, the stuff itself has kind of dissolved more and more on inspection. Um, because you, you know, you take, take a, a fundamental part you know, an elementary particle, like an electron and you ask, well, what really is an electron? And, you know, physics gives you some pretty, uh, 
like extremely specific and yet slightly evasive answers <laughs> to this question uh, in that it, it says, well, an electron is something that has a particular amount of angular momentum, a particular mass, like, like a particular amount of spinning, spinningness to it. It's been a particular amount of mass. Um, it's got a position. It's got a momentum. It's got a lepton number. And that's it. It's not like there are tons of different kinds of, of electrons. They're all pretty much the same. Right. So once you specify those things, that it's got those things, it's an electron and there's no nothing more to say. Um, it's not this electron or that electron. Um, and so that is an electron. But then if you, you still can't avoid thinking that there's a little chunk of stuff that has those properties. Um, but from the physics perspective, it, an electron sort of is those properties. If you ask, you know, an electron in, in some sense is what an electron does or what an electron is measured as doing. And uh, this is this has been a long there's there's sort of a long history in quantum mechanics of of struggling with this idea that uh, we have in quantum mechanics a, a a state vector a wave function that's supposed to tell us uh, what we are going to measure. So if we if we say I'm going there's an electron around here somewhere I'm going to measure where it is with my experimental apparatus. The the mathematical thing that that describes that is the wave function and it tells us that there's a probability that when we make a measurement, we'll say, ah, the electron is here or the electron is there. Um, and so we we're unavoidably have some sense that like there's secretly an electron and we just don't know where it is. That's, that would right. be a normal classic sense of probabilities that there is a reality to it, but we're ignorant. And so we don't know. But the, the history of quantum mechanics really indicates that there isn't something, there isn't a reality beyond the wave function, that the wave function uh, is kind of all that there is. That, um, And we can take different viewpoints, like uh, the wave function is like a physically real thing, or that it's purely an informational or like a knowledge thing. But there, there's no real sense operationally or, or like in any meaningful way that there's an electron there other than that, that has like more to it than we get out of the wave function. The wave function is a complete description. It's got everything we can possibly know about the electron and there's no extra stuff to be had. And yeah. And so that's a kind of confusing state of affairs because you, you know, the, the, what is the wave function? It's like an informational type thing. It's, it, it's, it feels like it's about the electron. Um, and yet it's all that there is. And so I think this is, this is kind of a, a, a basis for this way of thinking, you know, that, that I think has come more and more uh, into focus and, in, and, and into vogue at some level since uh, John Wheeler, I think was, was really its first uh, outspoken proponent that there isn't something other than the information about the universe. The information is what there is. So, I mean, it, then why not it's just say, okay, the, the wave function is the, is a description of a single electron is uh, like, let's say we have one wave function. That's a description of a single electron. Tell me if I'm wrong here. And then another wave function might say, Hey, the, this is another electron that's likely to be over there. It's a description of another electron. Um, those are, you know, why is that, you know, either that electron exists or it doesn't, but can we say it exists as a, a wave function? Oh, my God, I'm having a hard time thinking how to talk about this. <laughs> like, I, okay, I'm very comfortable with the idea of having like, hey, a mathematical description 
Um, this is a mathematical description of how the particle works. I'm comfortable n- now with the idea of it not having a definite position. But um, it, is that um, is that w- what we mean by reducing it to information? It's more of like a mathematical description versus like a, a bunch of a smudge in space or something? Well, I think it's um, in some sense, I mean, what I find provocative is the idea that there uh, that the information is not about something like you, you would, you would of course think that, you know, whatever the universe was, was like, there'd be information about it. And that information might get really, really accurate. And you might say that you might even say that that information is, is like almost in one-to-one correspondence with the stuff itself. If you had a really perfect description, um, right. but there's still a sense in which there's a universe out there that the information is about. And, and as like an, an agent, and as a, like a mental being that thinks about stuff, we have that information. Um, and this is asking the question, do we, do we still gain anything by keeping the idea that there's something that the information is about? Um, and, it, and when you think about that, it's really hard to sort of think what that means um, because we're... I mean, we're certainly used now in computer with computers to to processing information, um, right? But but just a string of ones and zeros, you know. First of all, it's instantiated in some physical form, but but we're used sure, to it. Sure. When we talk about it as information that is sort of meaningful, we think of it as information about something. Um, and if we think about information that's about other information, that's about other information, that's about other information. Um, that sort of makes sense, but it kind of makes your head spin if, you know, if that's the fundamental nature of reality. Well, if you have this chain of information about other information about other information, uh, do you think it has to stop at some point? Does there have to be some, I don't know, uh, like, does it have to be some well-founded system? I did a episode on on paradoxes and about how you know mathematics has to be well-founded, um, otherwise you get paradoxes, is... Um, do you think this applies to the physical world too, where eventually you have to come to some fundamental unit? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, it's what's interesting about the way you you might think that, that you're going down in size or in depth or something, but you know, if you ask about an electron, you're asking about its wave function. What is its wave function? Really? Um, You could say it's about the electron, but in some sense, what it's really about is what, somebody will measure when they measure the electron in some way. In what way? Yeah. Well, well, that's described by the apparatus that they have. And in fact, you need to describe the apparatus to be able to like, describe the right way of thinking about the wave function. And so it, there's kind of this weird circle in that the wave function isn't just about the electron, but the way you kind of uh, define the wave function is in terms of stuff that you would measure using a, a, a like life-size macroscopic non-subatomic measuring device. So it kind of like the information about information kind of weirdly goes around in the circle um, rather than kind yeah. of bottoming out in some super deep level of reality. And, and I find that really fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about measurement of, does this have to be, 
you know, measurement by humans because most electrons in the universe are not measured by humans, but they interact with other particles, right? So right. is it really more of, are, are we really talking about more of how they interact with other particles or other electrons when we talk about measurement or does it have to be actual um, measurement by, you know, sentient beings? Yeah, it, it certainly, uh, to talk about measurement, you don't have to talk about sentient beings doing it. So, so there's a whole... Uh, branch of, of kind of foundations of quantum theory, thinking about what, how to define a measurement in, in the sense of uh, a quantum system interacts with some more complicated other quantum system. And the, the combination evolves into something that looks like two distinct, like macroscopic things that are distinguishable from each other. And and you can, in some level, call that a measurement in that um, what, what, what looked like a single quantum system and a single measurement device now has evolved into two different looking measurement devices that, ha say, have two different readouts for where that particle is or what it was doing. So, so that's all within sort of the, the framework of quantum mechanics. Um, <clears throat> the tricky part then gets to be, what do you do that with that then? So, so now you have two... The, the theory says there are two different apparatuses, um, both on the same level of being and part of this, the, the wave function of, of the system and the apparatus, but they look very different. You can show that those two apparatuses don't kind of interact with each other. They're two versions of the same apparatus that, that you kind of can't tell that the other apparatus is still in the system when you look at just one of them. Now, are both of those apparatuses real in the same sense? Is one of them real and the other one's kind of just a fiction that's left over from, from the, the description that you had before and isn't real? That's where people start to argue about things in quantum mechanics. So, so there's, there's a, not, a part that people don't argue about, which is the first part, how you can, you can get these two, like the apparatus to, to evolve into two different apparatuses as part of the same quantum system. That, that kind of don't mess around with each other. But then how you think about that is, is where the arguments start. Are they both real? Is one of them real? How do we think about it? Uh, that's where people, the yelling begins. Okay. So let me, let me go into like how I was, I guess, taught and maybe see how, how things diverge from there. Cause it's usually like, okay, you have this wave function. It's, um, you know, yeah, it's a function of imaginary numbers over space. Then we turn it into probability distribution. All right, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna paper over that because last I encountered that was probably like 15, 20 years ago. Uh, but um, uh, well, maybe more like 15. Um, I was, I wasn't that good in high school. Uh, but um, it, 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 it was almost, it's almost described as like, okay, once we measure it, the probability distribution gets sampled from like, you know, mm -hmm. okay, it's like one of my probability distributions in code where, you know, we kind of nature picks a spot. And I don't know if this is an outdated way of thinking about it, an oversimplified way of thinking about it. So, how do you how do you usually explain the interpretation of quantum physics to uh, uh, like a non physicist? The way I like to think about it uh, is so I think that that way of thinking about it is the kind of the textbook way and is and is reasonable in a lot of senses. Um, I I but tend there's to, something about it that feels wrong. I think you uh, you know. Uh, I think you might know what I'm talking about. It just feels like, you know, why would it 
pick a spot. Like, why is there no, um, yeah, especially when first encountering these ideas, which, yeah. you know, it's like, why would, if there's a 50% chance it's in point A and a 50% chance in point B, why pick one over the other? How does that work? Right, you right. Know, and so, so the way I like to think about it is that quantum mechanics uh, fundamentally is telling us that there are physical systems that are simple enough that they only have a certain number of, a finite number of actual properties, um, like questions that you can ask them that you will get back a definite yes or no answer, right? So, so go, going back to the electron, there are a few questions we can ask it, like which way, are, you know, how much are you spinning around this axis, you know, that points this way? Uh, where are you? How fast are you moving? Um, and that's kind of it. Like those are the questions you can ask the electron and, and it can give you some, and, and to some set of those questions, it will give you definite answers. Okay. So, so suppose the, the, the electron is in a state where it get, would give definite answers to I'm in this X, Y, and Z coordinates, and I'm spinning about this particular axis. Okay, so so those are yeah. sure things about the electron. But now suppose you ask a que another question that isn't one of those questions. Okay, what's it going to do? I've just said that it's got a finite set and, and that's it of definite properties. So if you ask another question that isn't in that list, it can't be a definite answer, right? It can't be. So it gives you yeah. an indefinite answer. And, um, and, th and that's where the probabilities come in. And it's very hard... You know, the, the, the real stumbling block is imagining an object that has that finite set of, of properties, because we're used to, when we have some object in real life, once we come up with a question to ask about it, um, like if it's a well-defined question, it'll give, us, it, it'll give us an answer. And we're used to being able to come up, like whatever question we have, if it's well-defined, it'll give us like a yes or no answer to that question, like Right, right. We can make up any property we want and, and it has it or it doesn't. Um, and we're not used to the idea that there can be a kind of discrete set and, a, and an exhaustible set of properties that something can have while still having more questions that we might ask about it. And so once you, you have that fundamental tension about the kind of the continuum of questions we can ask and the finitude of answers that it can definitely give, you're stuck with the idea that it's going to give indefinite answers. Um, so, so then the formalism of quantum mechanics is then, well, what does that, what form do those indefinite answers come in? They come in probabilities. How do we compute what those probabilities are and so on? That's the whole formalism of quantum mechanics. But I think fundamentally it stems from that, that uh, discreteness, you know, that, that finite amount of information that's carried and, and sort of embodied in, in any physical system uh, as contrasted with the, the continuum and plentitude of questions that we as, as kind of macroscopic observers can ask of it. Um, so, so that's a, that's a, maybe a different direction, but I think that's where the fundamental tension comes from and the confusion and, and why it's so confusing is because we're not used to, we, we simply are not used to objects with that sort of uh, behavior to them, like that is like no object we can um, we can encounter or imagine in real life that has that those sorts of properties. Right, right, right. Um, you know, even the wave function we think about it um, is uh, 
well, I don't know if it's related, but it's like it's not like somebody's sitting there measuring the wave function. It's more like, you know, you guys, physicists, <laughs> come up with, uh, you know, the, the wave function idea many years ago. And then it's like, okay, if we assume that this is happening, then, uh, you know, we, we work forward and that explains the data that we're seeing very well. And so even then, I almost now I just think of kind of like a concentration of probability as if probability is stuff. But I know that's not quite right. Like yeah. there's almost probability juice all around the universe, but now I'm like, hmm, that's the the human intuition doesn't seem to work very well here. Yeah, it, it's a it's one of my favorite things about physics that that uh, there are some things that we know really really well. So we we have simultaneously like great confidence in uh, conceptually and mathematically and quantitatively, uh, like and explanation and predictions about physical events using physics. But at the same time, if you dig just a little bit, you quickly run into these conceptual questions, which, which really nobody has a, a totally satisfactory answer to, um, and yeah. are somewhat paradoxical and, and defy our intuition. Um, and yet we can make progress on them. And as we make progress, we stretch our intuition and we uncover more interesting questions. I, I, I really like that you brought up the question, the issue of paradox, like, um, because that's one of the juiciest things I think you can come across when you're thinking about in, in physics, like, okay, I know this has got to be true for this reason. And I know this other thing has got to be true for this other reason, but those two things totally contradict each other and are not compatible. Like right. that's when it gets exciting because you know that you can learn something by delving into that and, and trying to resolve that paradox. And something's going to break um, because, the, you know, over and over again, the world has proven to us that uh, it is sort of comprehensible that, that these paradoxes do uh, have a resolution, at least so far. Um, and yet they seem so mystifying and, and it's at the time and it's so satisfying and, and, and such a kind of conceptual leap that you have to go through sometimes to reach that resolution um, that, that it's really what makes physics worth doing, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. The, the paradox that I spoke about were more of the mathematical ones. But I, I have to say, like, seeing those, like, you know, um, set theory, uh, uh, the, yeah, the, the a set that's <laughs> set of all sets that uh, don't contain themselves, does the set contain itself, that sort of thing. You see that, and then it give, immediately gives you motivation to being like, no, this, there's something going on here that can't be right. What am I, what am I missing? What am I screwing up? And then when you dive into it and figure it out, it gives you a much better understanding. Right. Logical there are logical paradoxes and then there are kind of the kind of paradoxes you meet in physics, which usually aren't true paradoxes. I, I actually came up with a new yeah. term. Well, for neither that. are the logical ones, but they're more like artifacts of like kind of a faulty understanding of set or logic or something. There's some, always something going on. Nothing, something. You can never really prove true equals false. Right. Right. So, so I, I just wrote a book uh, called Cosmological Koans. And, and the koan is the, the term, so this is a Zen term for kind of this riddle or puzzle that a teacher will confront a student with that has so a kind of you, paradoxical feel to it. So that's um, called K-O-A-N-S? Yes, K-O-A-N-S, okay. cosmological koans. Um, so it, it has that, it's along the same lines, like where are the juicy things that um, really feel like, wow, that can't be, or really, is it like that, or... Or like, yes, I believe this and this, and oh, crap, those two things do not agree with each other. 
Um, right. so, so those things that, that are really provocative and you sort of feel like, uh, how can reality be that way? Um, that's what I've kind of in that book tried to package together, you know, and, and it, including quantum mechanics and cosmology and information and all kinds of other, other things that I personally find interesting. Um, and I like that, that form because of, of the koan or the paradox, because that's where I think the real fun is, you know, that's where I think the real interest yeah. is. If you're just reading information about what's been figured out, I mean, that's, that's useful and all, but that's not where to me the excitement is. The excitement is in the, whoa, that can't be like, wait a minute, hold on. Let's talk about this. Um, right, right, right. Like we've been doing in this conversation. Um, I think that's where the fun is. And so if you're not doing that, I feel like you're not getting as much as you can out of physics. If you're just feeling like, oh, let me get these concepts, you know, explained as clearly as possible using the current party line. Um, that's fine right. and all, and, and that's good for a class, but it's, it's, yeah, it's not the fun part. So I definitely will link to that book and I definitely, I want to check it out. You know, I want to order it because that sounds like something that would be, uh, totally interesting to me. Um, do you have any other examples of books or videos that people will check out if they want to learn more, uh, on the, uh, on the physics side? Um, there are a whole, well, that's a, that's tough to pick out. A, well, well, of, of yours, of yours, of mine, yeah. I think that, that, that one is the, probably the best. Um, okay. And I will I put a lot of effort into that one. All right. Next week, you'll get to the second part of the conversation with Anthony Aguirre on Metaculus, the prediction engine and how it works and what sort of things they're predicting on there. Also, if you're interested in having a good understanding of the topics that we discussed today, check out the book Cosmological Koans. It really starts at the beginning. And the following week in episode 86, we'll see. I hope to do another news update with Aaron. So maybe I'll try to get that in for episode 86. I love getting those in. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.